Romans chapter 15. I want to read the first seven verses. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is our duty. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. This is our goal. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is our example, the Lord Jesus. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, and here's the summary, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, it is great to be with your people. It is a good thing to sing your praises. It does delight the heart. We recognize there is grace here, that this is a blessing to the soul of a believer to come and gather with the saints, to sing your praises, to hear your word. And Lord, we ask that it, all of our efforts would not be in vain, but that you would visit us, that you would meet with us. God, we know that one word from your mouth could dispel every corruption, every wrong thought, every false and sinful motive. We ask that you would come and teach us from your word. I pray that it would be our united desire and confession that we are desperate without you and that we need you to come and teach us. So please do that for us, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, for His sake, for the glory of His name, for the edification of His church. We ask all of these things. Amen. You may be seated. I'll remind you one last time of where we've been for the past five weeks. And as I read through these short summaries, hopefully you'll be able to remember a piece of what was said about these truths. Going all the way back to the beginning, each member of a particular local church has a responsibility and a relationship with the members of that church and that church as a whole that they don't share to all of the other members of every other church or to every other church in the world. I passed a lot of churches 
on my way here this morning. None of them are wondering right now, where's Paul? Where's Christy? Because I'm not a part of their church, and that's okay. And there are a lot of people in those churches who are sitting right now, they're worshiping the Lord, and none of them are wondering, where's Paul? None of them are here. And we're not wondering, where's so-and-so? Why, why aren't they here? Because they go to their church, and we go to our church, and that's perfectly fine, and that's normal. And we, we understand that there is some aspect of our relationship with one another that's different than that which we share with even other believers in other churches. Once we have established, or we could say underneath, the preaching of the true gospel and the establishment of a biblically ordered church, the supreme emphasis of the New Testament in the ongoing life of that church is to cultivate and maintain unity in that body. And that unity goes back up to those first two things that are supreme. The true gospel and biblical order. When we talk about unity, we're not talking about an ecumenical unity between churches across doctrinal or, or truth-based lines. And a lot of people talk about unity. This has become one of, the, one of the evangelical gods of our culture, unity. And I've sat in these meetings and I know men who will sit around a table gathering month after month after month with people, with men that I, they know they don't agree with when it comes to doctrine. Nobody has clarified what the biblical gospel is, what the kingdom of Christ is, but we're all working together, racking our brains, filling up whiteboard after whiteboard after whiteboard, trying to figure out how we can work together to get the, quote, gospel out to the people and advance the, quote, kingdom. But nobody's establishing what's the gospel and what's the kingdom. Nobody knows what we're doing except for usually giving out haircuts, giving out backpacks, giving out Christmas presents, blowing up inflatables and having a slide or something to try to get people into churches. That's not what we're talking about. I'm, we're not interested in any of that. And, um, and, and it's been a while since I realized that was a waste of my time. Um, we're talking about the oneness of heart and mind, a oneness or unity and aspiration and growth that is built upon the objective truth of the Word of God. The objective truth, what is the gospel? We don't, that's close-handed. We're not going to lean on it. We're not going to give on it anywhere, no, no way, shape, or form. We're not going to make disciples beside somebody or, or we're not going to evangelize beside somebody, I should say who then once they bring somebody into their congregation is going to disciple them in a way contrary to the Scriptures. Because our goal is not just converts, our goal is disciples. And if they don't have the true Christ, how can they make disciples of Christ? They can't. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about a unity built on the objective truth of God's Word. This kind of unity in, in the body of Christ is one of the many traits that are used as signposts to mark out our pathway from Adam to glory. We can look at how we feel about Christians as one of many tests to sort of examine God's work. If I, if I love other believers, that can be a testimony to God's work in my heart or the lack thereof. If I do not care for unity in the body and love for other believers, and that's because the fundamental grace necessary for this unity is Christian love. Not worldly love, not pagan love, not romantic love, but Christian love where we seek the greatest good of one another through self-sacrifice, this love modeled after the example of our Lord. 
What did he do? He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we've seen in our text, he did not come to please himself. It did not please the Lord Christ in his humanity to walk the, the way of suffering to Golgotha, beaten and whipped and spit upon, and to have nails driven in his hands, and a crown of thorns on his head, and nails through his feet. None of that pleased his flesh. He did that for us, for our salvation. He came to give his life as a ransom, a purchased price for a bride. That's our example. So that's how we love. We cannot display Christian love without following that example. There's no Christian love apart from sacrifice for the good of others. That love comes with positive commands and negative prohibitions. Things that we do and things that we avoid. And if we wanted to summarize the avoiding and sort of lay it alongside of what we've been talking about in sanctification, the, the avoiding, the things that we are to be avoiding for the sake of others, that is a consistent dying to myself, mortifying my flesh for the good of others. That's what it looks like. Now today we're going to conclude this little excursus by sort of taking a step back, zooming back out and looking at corporate unity as first and foremost a work of God and then we're going to look at some of the fruits that we can expect to come from this. So here's the main thing I want you to get. God has to do it and when God does it, we can expect God's blessings. God must do it. And when God does it, we can expect God's blessing. So, main heading number one, the necessity of God's work. The necessity of God's work. While the Scriptures are clear, as we've seen, and I've tried to labor this point, unity in a local church, both in its positive commands and in its negative prohibitions, it falls under the category of what we now understand as progressive sanctification, which means, like everything else in sanctification, we have a job to do. We have duties. We have to be busy. But at the same time, with all of the other aspects of progressive sanctification, apart from God's powerful working in us and through us, all of our labors are in vain. We have to be, and this unity requires personal, intentional, strident effort. I must be doing. And at the same time, in all of my doing, if God does not come and bless, all of my doing is in vain. It is God's work. Yes, we participate. We follow the commands and the prohibitions. We are to chase after that harmony and peace in the body. No neglect of our duty will be absolved in the light of the truth that God must do the work. In other words, we can never say, well, since God has to do it, I really don't need to try all that hard on my end. We're never absolved of any duty in light of the sovereign promises of God. As a matter of fact, we can't even trust in the sovereign promises of God unless we are about our duty. We have to work, but our work is in vain apart from God's working. We have to work but all of our efforts are powerless apart from God. And, and to use the Apostle Paul's language, we have to be planting and we have to be watering, but only God can give the growth. God has to produce this in a church. And I'll prove that by remembering or reminding you of a few things. First, that the church 
is God's creation. The very sphere where this unity exists, and really the only sphere on planet earth where this can exist, this type of unity we're, we're describing, the only place that it can exist is in the local church, and that's a body that God has created. Remember the church is a called out assembly. God does the calling, and God does the assembling. We see in Scripture that those added to the church are added according to God's prerogative, not ours. We don't add to the church. God adds to His church. Remember we looked at Acts 4.32, which says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's unity. No one said that any of the things that belonged to Him was His own, but they had everything in common. There was unity in these people who were being converted. And if we step back to chapter 2 and see the beginnings of this, this group of people who were believing, the text says, Acts 2.41, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So there was a, a natural spiritual unity amongst those who were added. Acts 5.14, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Acts 11.24, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Now all of those uses of the word added are passive. That means these people weren't adding themselves. Somebody was doing it to them. Who's doing the addition? We go back to chapter 2 to see where all of this springs from Acts 2.47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So throughout the book of Acts, Luke labors to remind us it is God Almighty who's adding people to His church. He's bringing them in. God saves sinners, and God is the one who's been working from the, from the beginning of time to orchestrate specific people in specific churches, in specific places, for specific times. It's God who's created this. And so, for our own application, this church is not an accident. And it's not a creation of men. I usually tell people when they ask about the history of our church that really we can just look back and trace God's faithfulness to work through and in spite of the silly foolishness of men who had no idea what they were doing. That's what this, this church is. God brings people together. Add to that that the individuals in any particular church have been gifted according to God's prerogative. God adds the souls to any church that ought to be there, and then those people who are there, He gives them the particular gifts needed for that body. 1 Corinthians 12, 6 there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. That same chapter, multiple references to, to drive home this point. Verse 11, speaking of the gifts, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Not as I will. I don't get to pick my spiritual gifts. The Spirit apportions. Verse 18, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. Verse 24, God has so composed the body. Verse 28, God has appointed in the church first apostles, etc. God does this. In Ephesians 4.8, therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He, that is Christ, gave gifts to men. The ascended Lord is the one giving the gifts. 
1 Peter 4.10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. It is the use of our gifts as a body that tends toward unity and effectiveness as a church. And God apportioned the gifts. God empowered the gifts. God composed the body. Christ ascended and gave the gifts. They're all gifts of God's very grace. God calls. God assembles. God distributes in each and every local church the gifts He would have those people to have. So nobody, nobody needs to raise their hand or speak out loud, but just ask yourself, am I a part of this church? Am I in this room for most of us? then God has given you something specific to use in this church, apart from which this church remains incomplete in its work. Consider also that the fundamental grace necessary to cultivate unity, love, it's a fruit produced by God. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Top of the list, love. We cannot get together and just sprout some love. The Spirit has to produce it in us. So we put all of that together, and most of that is sort of a, a reminder, but all of that should have us convinced that corporate unity as to its substance, its practical outworking, and the fundamental grace necessary, all of it is a gift from God. God has to work it. Now notice the text that we read, Romans 15 and verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Now this is a benediction. This is a, a pronouncement of goodwill or good blessings upon the church at Rome. This is no doubt something that had been the subject matter of the apostles' prayers for them privately. Now he's declaring it in the, the letter to them. He wants this for them. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you. The word grant means give as a gift. He wants God to give them this gift. But notice the language May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Now everything we've read in chapters 14 and 15 would, will help us answer this question. Who's doing the living here? It's us. The, the saints in Rome are the ones who have to live. It's the job of the saints in every church to work for this harmony. But at the same time, who is the one who has to give the power of mind and will and purpose and the endurance to live this way? It is God. God has to give it. So we can see the reality that's stated or displayed in, in 2 Chronicles 30 and verse 12. And I, I said I was going to limit myself to the New Testament, but here we have it stating in sort of an indicative form. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. God gave them one heart to do. Who's doing? They are the ones doing. What are they doing? The things commanded and given in the word of God. But God has to give them one heart, that unity, to do it. We look back at the way men were created. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, 
We could call them the very first church. There they were, naked, unashamed, cleaving to one another in perfect unity, no disagreements, no faults between them. And the fall happens, sin enters the picture, and immediately there is division. There's shame, there is a failure to do one's duty, there's blame shifting. All of a sudden that unity that they had at creation is disrupted. Following the fall, mankind can get together, but only for evil. We see that at the Tower of Babel. Wicked men coming together, not for the purpose God had commanded, but to effectively disobey God corporately. Corporate disobedience. We see this in Psalm 2. The nations rage and the people plot in vain. They're getting together all right, but it's for one purpose. To oppose God and His anointed. To oppose the Lord. It's antichrist unity. We see this throughout the Scriptures, especially in the trial of our Lord. You've got men getting together who once weren't friends, now they are friends. You've got people who are getting together to try to collaborate some false story to get this man crucified. They're working together, but all of the unity since the fall, apart from Christ, is an antichrist, anti-God unity. You see this in our culture, in the uh, so-called LGBTQ community, and most of you have heard, they want to have this community. Well, you can't have a community around a shared deviation. They don't even share in their deviation. The, the only thing that unifies them is that they hate the, the natural order of things. They are unified in their hatred of God's patterns. This is what men unify around, but this... This unity that we're talking about comes only through Christ and by His Spirit. God has to give it. In John 15, Christ is the vine, we are the branches. Christ says, apart from me, you can do nothing. The unity that we have, the unity that two branches have, is the vine that connects them. It's a, a unity around Christ. And so as I've uh, labored to sort of set forth this picture of unity, it might sound great and it might look great on paper and it, we might be spurred to ask what can I do and what, what needs to be done. We need to go off to the drawing board to try to cultivate this unity. But we have to understand that apart from God's work, all of our efforts are in vain. We are powerless to do this. And at the same time, any unity that we might be able to conjure up apart from God's power, while it might feel good, it might, it might satisfy our flesh, it might pacify the need we feel to kind of get along with each other, apart from Christ, it's not what we're after. It's not Christian unity. When the Spirit of Christ fills the people and they start dying, then the Spirit of God will come in even more power and give even more unity. God has to give it. Second heading, the necessity of God's goals. See, the necessity of God's work, now the necessity of God's goals. An appropriate pursuit of unity in the church, if it is expected to have the blessing of God's Spirit, must be motivated by and have as its chief end God's own goals. And so we ask... What has God said is the goal of this unity? What are we after? Are we just setting our own goals? Or has God given us something that we can say, that's what we're after. All of this unity is working towards that. What's God's goal? 
I'll give you a threefold answer. First, maturity in the body. When a congregation is walking in this God-given unity, we can expect the body to mature and to grow. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll look at a passage I've hinted at a couple times. Ephesians chapter 4. I'll begin reading at verse 11. And He, this is Christ, who's ascended, who's given the gifts, and He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, in the present, for lack of a better word, dispensation of the church age, we can see here that shepherds and teachers, or some would render that shepherd teachers, have been given to the church to feed the church the Word. All of these offices are Word proclamation gifts. These gifts have been given to give the Word to the people, and that Word, when given, equips you for the ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. So I come and I give you the word. The other men stand up here and they give you the word. And you take the word and you are by that word and spirit equipped. You're given what you need to do the ministry. Now what's the goal of your ministry? Keep reading. For building up the body of Christ. Your ministry as an individual in this church is to be equipped with the Word and when you get the Word, you use your gifts to build the body of Christ. That's your ministry. The building up of the body of Christ. And then what's the end game? What are we working towards? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's our goal. We all, all of the saints, we're, we're, we're working together to build up the body so that, we, so that we can all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of Christ. We're, we're growing into a unity, which is a unity not in spite of the faith. It is a unity of the faith. We're learning in truth, growing in truth, and that truth gives us and feeds into the knowledge of Christ. That's our supreme goal. That's, that's what we're going to be doing for eternity is knowing Him. That is eternal life, knowing Him. So we're growing ultimately into a deeper knowledge of Christ. So we, this maturity is a harmony of mind and spirit which revolves around knowing Christ Himself. And there Paul gives the language of mature manhood, the stature of the fullness of Christ. So you can picture an adult male, full-grown maturity. That's what we're after. The fullness, the stature of the fullness of Christ. I'm going to define that phrase, fullness of Christ. So I'm going to let somebody else define it for you. Quote, that phrase, the fullness of Christ, is 
the plenitude of life, of grace, of truth, of wisdom, of knowledge, of goodness, of mercy, of righteousness, of power. All of that in Christ. In Him are all of the riches of wisdom and of knowledge. All of the fullness dwells in Christ. And I don't believe, and I'm not the only one who doesn't believe, I don't believe that the language here, and also there's a reference in Colossians, I don't believe the language is here is dealing primarily with Christ ontologically, that He is the fullness of God. It just says the fullness of Him, or the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 1.23, Paul prayed that the church, or referred to the church, as the body of Christ, and says, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church there is the fullness of Christ. So using Paul's own words, all of the fullness dwells in Christ, and yet the church is also the fullness of Christ, and the church is working together to obtain the fullness of Christ. He prayed in chapter 3, that you may be filled with all the fullness, there he says, the fullness of God. The fullness of Christ is given through the gifts of the Spirit of Christ to the body of Christ. And when the individuals who've been given those gifts use the gifts given to them by the Spirit, the body is then filled with all the fullness of Christ. And as the body attains to that fullness, then the individual members are the beneficiaries of all of the fullness of Christ. In other words, as the body grows, the individuals grow. And as the individuals grow, the body grows. In that same section in chapter 4, Paul says, This is from Christ, who is our head. The whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, all of the fullness is in Christ. We are working to maturity, the, the stature of the fullness of Christ. And yet all of that fullness has been given to us. Where? In the church, His body. And when we work together, we will attain to that maturity eventually. I'm going to quote, John Murray, the church is the recipient of that fullness of righteousness, wisdom, knowledge, power, grace, goodness, patience, love, truth, and mercy, which has its permanent abode in Christ and abides in Him in terms of an economy that has no relevance apart from the purpose of, and here are my words, communicating this fullness to its members. That's what he's been talking about. The fullness, this fullness, believers do not receive as discrete individuals, but in the unity and fellowship of the church as the body of Christ. In other words, we can't get to this maturity by ourselves. Because it was never meant to be obtained by ourselves. You're not going to be glorified without me. I'm not going to be glorified without you. We're all going to get there together when Christ returns. It's about His body, His bride. To summarize it again, Christ gives the gifts, which are a portion measured of the apportioned measures of the very grace of which He Himself has the fullness. He has the Spirit without measure. We have apportioned measures of the Spirit. 
when the members of the body use those gifts, those apportioned measures of grace, the whole body then begins to benefit from all of the fullness that actually dwells in Christ Himself. And when the body receives that fullness of grace, the members are built up. And as the members are built up into the fullness of Christ, the body grows to maturity in Christ. But if we don't have maturity as our goal, if you don't care if I grow, and if I don't care if you grow, and that's going to manifest itself in your willingness to die to yourself for the sake of the body, and my willingness to die for ourselves for the sake of the body, if we don't have that as our goal, we're never going to achieve this maturity. Because we're going to be saying, well, I, I, I've been given a gift, but I'm just not going to use it today. We have to have God's goals. What does God want? God wants a mature church. Christ will have a mature bride. He, he's given all of the gifts to His church. We don't lack in anything, just like the church in Corinth. We don't lack any spiritual gift. If we lack a gift, it's because Christ is incomplete. Christ is not incomplete. He's given us exactly what we need here and now in this place to be an effective body, to grow into maturity. But if we are not all convinced that their maturity is my responsibility and my maturity is your responsibility, then we're never going to grow. It's all going to continually be this individualistic hamster wheel where we come and we run on this wheel going to church wondering why I'm never growing. I'm never growing. I'm never growing. It's because you've not understood that the body is given for your growth. So we have to have that as our goal. Maturity in the body and maturity as individuals. This will lead to second, the second goal, being an effective witness. You'll remember from our study in the Revelation, the church has one job, ultimately, to hold up, hold fast, and hold out. Hold up the light of the gospel, hold fast through affliction and suffering, hold out until the end, until death. That's our job. Our mission is to advance the kingdom of Christ through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The local church is a lamp stand. Our job is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And notice that's the job of the church, not the individual, not the preacher, not the evangelist. The pastor is not the pillar and buttress of the truth, and everybody else pays him to just keep being the pillar and buttress of the truth. He's, I'm not the lampstand. We are the lampstand. It's a body. The church is the lampstand. We have this job, a task at hand. Now we know from our Lord that a kingdom which is divided against itself cannot stand. A house that's divided against itself cannot stand. I think we could take that principle over to the church and say, can a church that is divided against itself consistently bear the light of effective witness in the world? It can't happen. There has to be unity, and unity will then work towards creating or, or edifying, building up a church that is an effective witness. Just consider a couple examples. Will the men who are engaged in regular outreach, track distribution, open-air preaching, whatever it might be, will those men be able to fulfill their potential if the rest of the congregation isn't in agreement about what they're doing? Well, they go out and preach, but I mean, I'm just not really for that. I just don't think that's the way we ought to go about it. Then you're probably not praying for them. If you disagree with what they're doing, you see... Will our work 
with the churches in Malawi have any hope of long-term fruit if the pastor is the only one who really has an interest in what's happening at Antioch Bible Church or Antioch Baptist Church or Reformation Bible Church or Grace Bible Church. If I'm the only one that cares, we might as well just call them and say, hey, we changed our mind. It's not us. It's just the pastor. There has to be unity. Will mothers engaged in evangelism in their home with their children, will there be any encouragement for them if they gather with the church only to find out they're the only ones doing it and nobody else in the church can even sympathize with what they're feeling? No. Will men in the workplace feel very confident in their gospel witness if they never hear another man in the congregation testify to his difficulties in that work? No. He's going to think, I'm the only one doing this. Nobody, nobody understands this? Listen to Paul. Philippians 1.27 Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Notice that his desire is unity. One spirit, one mind, standing firm. I want to hear, whether I'm there or whether I'm far away, I want to hear you all are standing firm, united in the body, for what? So that they can get together on Sunday and talk about how unified they are? No. So that they can strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. He goes on to say, not frightened in anything by your opponents. As a lampstand of the gospel, the church as a whole and the members of it are always striving to uphold the faith of the gospel. We have to defend the gospel from outside opponents. We have to defend the gospel from the obstinacy inside the church because of remaining corruption. We have to labor to advance the gospel outside through evangelism, inside the church through sanctification and growth in the body. This is our job and it's simply a matter of experiential reality that strength and encouragement and endurance and motivation in a battle come from knowing this guy's got my back and this guy's got my back and this guy's not going to shoot my ear off. We understand that we're striving side by side. When we're united, we each enter the battle striving for the faith of the gospel and we do so encouraged and invigorated and strengthened, knowing I'm not the only one doing this. Whether it's physically, we're actually standing together at somebody's door explaining the gospel, or whether it's merely in spirit, I want to know that my brothers and sisters are striving for the same gospel I'm striving for and advancing the same kingdom that I'm advancing. How much encouragement would we all have in our witness as individuals and thus a witness as a body when we know that there is an entire body of believers behind us in that? There's encouragement there. How much encouragement will I receive when I know that even when I fail in my gospel attempts, I've got brothers to encourage me who can say, man... I've been there. It's awful, ain't it? Don't you feel like an idiot? Well, that's okay. I've been there. Get up and get back at it. How much encouragement can I have knowing that my methods have the consensual testimony of the church? That I'm not just out as a rogue doing my own thing. 
But the, the church has said, we want that man to do that job in that way. Go. That's, that's authority. That's the keys of the kingdom. Sending. How much encouragement, like the Apostle Paul, knowing that my gospel is not man's gospel. I'm preaching God's gospel. This is the same gospel they preach at church every week. I didn't make this thing up. They got it from the Scriptures. I'm getting it from the Scriptures. How much encouragement will we have in our witness when I know that standing firm on a gospel truth or a biblical issue, my family stops calling me around, my friends abandon me and don't want to be around with me. How much encouragement am I going to have when I know I've got another family who's not going to leave? Because they're doing the same things. They've been here. They understand it. Now we might object and say, well, isn't Christ enough for you? Isn't Christ enough? The answer is, He most certainly is. And He's given His Spirit to His body. This is where we prove Christ is enough. We come and receive grace from His body, the church. So unity serves to uphold an effective witness. We grow into maturity. We become an effective witness and through that, this unity promotes, thirdly, the glory of God. Corporate unity as defined by God and obtained through God's means brings glory to God. Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word that means for the purpose of or to the end that. So here's the goal. That you may with one voice glorify God. The voice there, we, we know that the voice is the, the outward expression of something internal, an inward reality something felt inside of us and believed, one voice would be a, a unified and singular felt reality that we are vocalizing together. And that's what he's saying. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, give you this gift to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ to the end that once you're together, you can with a unified voice glorify God. Now we all know that there's something amazing about listening to somebody sing who has a raw, natural talent. Untrained, un not mechanical, they can just sing. But it's, it's a completely different feeling when multiple people of talent get together, all with different voices, different registers, different ranges, and they all sing together in perfect harmony with one another. It's like you can hear very distinctly four parts. I can hear four parts. It's like four voices, except they're all coming together to, to bring forth one complete note of music. Just It's the same way in the church. It's, it's amazing. It is a blessing to see a brother or a sister in Christ glorify God. But it's doubly amazing or triply amazing or however many times you want to multiply it amazing to see brothers and sisters from a bunch of different backgrounds, at different places in their spiritual walk, different intellectual capacities, different gifts working together, all to produce a unified outward expression of what God is doing in them. 
That's what he's saying. Men can't create this. The only time... Now, a song just came to my mind. I won't sing it. But the only time men of the world can do this, can get together with this kind of unity, with all of these, these variances, is if they get together and drink their, their mental capacities away to where the unity that they feel is really just a blurred concept of reality. They're not living in the real world anymore. Christ puts together a people in this way, a unified, harmonious Worship of God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So we could also say that the chief end of the church is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. When we pursue God's goals through God's means given to God's church in the strength and the power of God's Spirit, the ultimate and chief end is God's glory. A unified church glorifies God. Maturing saints glorify God. An effective witness glorifies God. Submission to God's means of obtaining unity glorifies God. And so the world would look at the church and they would say, there is no reason why these people using these means should still exist. These people should have been wiped out centuries ago. They stand up, a man gives a proclamation of a story about a baby who was born from a virgin mother, lived a perfect life, he never sinned, because he was actually God and man put together in one person. Then he died and came back from the dead. He went up into the sky and he's going to come back someday and get those people. These people get together and they preach this message. There's no reason why the church should still exist. There's no reason why the people in this room should have any type of unity around that foolishness according to the world standards except God did something. It's a testimony to God's working. That's what the scriptures ultimately say. God has to do this. God's doing it. It displays the manifold riches of Christ to the world and to the people in the church. Remember, Christ has all the fullness. And we must harmonize if we are to begin to promote even a shadow of that glory. Now, these are the goals. God must do it. God gives us the goals, and these types of goals sort of motivate us from the end. We look at them and we want them, hopefully. Or I could ask by way of application, do you desire to see God glorified on the earth? Ask yourself, do I care about the glory of God? Do you desire to see a church with an effective witness in the world? I hope you would say you do. I hope, I hope that you're not satisfied with this. I hope. It is good to get together with the saints and to worship. It is a blessing to spend the Sabbath together. But if there's never any growth... Never any fruit from evangelism. Hopefully we would at least begin to feel something's not right. Hopefully you desire to see a church with an effective witness in the world. Do you desire to see this church and the members of it grow into maturity? If God's goals are your goals, then we go back to point number one. You need God's powerful working. You can't do it by yourself. 
And it's not a, a work that happens overnight. I always use the illustration of, of mushrooms and oak trees. If it gets wet and soggy enough, a mushroom, mushroom can grow up overnight. And I can grow and pick it up off, off of the top of the ground and mush it with my fingers. It's nothing. No strength. But an oak tree with roots planted deep and spreading wide and growing up tall takes years and years of nutrients to build strong, healthy roots and then a strong tree. It's the same with unity in the church. It's not something that we say, well, we got the series done. That was great. I, I feel like we're unified. That's not how it works. It's a constant renewing and upkeep of this unity and at the same time a constant and desperate need for the work of God. So... What do you do? Three things. Four things. First, do your duty. We have commands given to cultivate unity. We have prohibitions given to prevent disunity. Do your job. If everybody does their job, that's, that's sort of step one. We're, we're moving towards that place. Until you're doing your duty, these other things begin to fall through. Secondly, Trust in God's providence in bringing you here. We have to be convinced that we are here in this room because God put us here. And we have to be convinced that as individuals, we have something to offer. You've got to be convinced that I can't grow without you. And I've got to be convinced that you can't grow without me. That we have a relationship to one another. And you might be riding to church or going home from church feeling like all of that is foolishness. I am completely inadequate. I am useless. I, am, I have a hard time believing that anything in me can be helpful to anybody else. That's why the Christian faith or the Christian life is a walk of faith. I'm believing. God, I don't see it. I don't see anything in me that could be of any benefit to anybody else. I'm working hard enough just to keep myself up. And God says, I've given you something to use. You've got to use it. And when you use it, I'll bless it and that body will grow. But if you're not convinced of that, then every time you get here, you're going you're gonna to come just to hopefully get. Just try to get everything you can from everybody else, but never any giving. So you've got to trust that in God's providence He's brought you here and He's gifted you. Thirdly, then, you rely on God's power. What do people who are doing their duty, who are convinced that God's providence has brought them here, and also persuaded that we need God's power, what do those people do? What's the first thing we do? We pray. When you, are, when you recognize, I need God to do something that I can't do, and I'm desperate for it and convinced about it, convicted that, or convinced that I need Him, I'm going to pray. Pray is how you display to God, I need you. That's what it is. So then we pray. Pray for others to be grace to you. Oh Lord, use so-and-so to bless me today. And then pray that you would be a grace to them. And Lord, use me as I enter into the assembly, on the Lord's Day especially, but this is other times, as I enter into the assembly, Lord, use me for their good. Use me. Help me to die to myself, to walk in the footsteps that the Spirit has prepared, and to be a blessing, a means of grace. Pray that the body itself would grow in that grace. That's how you show God 
You're serious. You pray. I'm doing my duty. I trust that He's put me here. Now, God, I need your help. And then fourthly, seek in all of that the glory of God. You have to be determined and convinced that it is your chief aim in life, whether in living unto old age, whether in dying early, whether in spiritual life or in spiritual dying to yourself, you have to be determined that I'm going to glorify God in everything that I do. That I am after God's glory and God's glory alone. And it doesn't matter if I have the smiles of men, the approval of men. None of that matters. I'm here for God's glory. I want God to use me. I want me, or I want to be an effectual tool in the hands of God. One of my most frequent prayers is, God, I don't want to die a useless preacher. I do not want to preach my whole life to look back and say, well, I didn't do anything, but I preached. I want to be used as a tool in the hand of God. Now, you pray that for yourself. Whatever your gifts are or gift is, God, I want to be effective here. I want to be used here. I don't care who knows my name anywhere else. I don't care about likes or downloads. I don't care about any of that. But God, make me an effectual tool here. I want to be useful. Make me useful for your glory. And when you start praying prayers like that, I believe He'll answer them when you're doing the other things. Dying to yourself, seeking His glory, seeking the advance and the growth of the body, seeking to be an effectual witness. God blesses those prayers. But again, if it's just one person in the room doing that, it's not going to be any good. Or three, or five. We've got to be unified in our understanding and our cries out to God. We need to be convinced that on Monday through Saturday... There's a group of people who are fully convinced, and they, we might not all be doing it at the same time, but we're all, I'm fairly convinced, praying for this one thing. That's encouraging to do that, and we can trust that God will bless those prayers. Seek God's glory. So let's pray that God would write His goals on our minds and our hearts, that He would work in us by His mighty power to strive for this unity for Christ's sake.